Ankit Bhuktani, a gay activist from Mumbai, wears many hats. He is the chairman and founder of the Queer Hindu Alliance in Mumbai, advisor to corporations on inclusivity and diversity, the editor of Gujarati literature magazine Patra Setu, and has been a part of the Mumbai Pride Parade since 2010. He travels across the country and did so for six months to campaign for the Supreme Court's judgment on Indian Penal Code 377 and works as a program officer for a nonprofit organization called Vidya. He's recognized as a champion of human rights and is a recipient of the Global Diversity and Inclusion Leadership Award by the World HRD Congress and has addressed the United Nations Human Rights Council amongst other prestigious venues. Welcome, Ankit. Thank you so much for having me. It's so good to see you and being part of this podcast. Awesome. And I know, you know, I've been following you um, for some time now on Instagram, and I know that you... um, are an acquaintance through our one of our co-founders, Mihir Megani. So I'm glad that we're finally getting this FaceTime. So let's start with your story. Where did you grow up? Um, did you grow up in an extended or nuclear family? Any strong sampraday or lineage affiliations for your family? Sure. So I was born into Shuddhadvaita Brahmavada, Pushti Maragi, Vaishnava Sampraday of Vallabhacharya. And uh, I practice the same even uh, today uh, as a choice and not just uh, because I was born into this tradition. So I'm a Vaishnava by choice as well. Uh, and uh, uh, it was a very nuclear family. My parents, my younger brother and uh, only four members uh, will be living. Unfortunately, I lost my father two years ago. And currently it's my mom and my brother and me uh, who are part of our family. I live in Mumbai. And uh, yes, that's just a family background at all. Sure. So I also come from a Prushti Marg family. So uh, that's a neat coincidence. I, as I grew older, had a lot of questions from my parents. You know, I was born and raised here in the United States. I had a lot of questions about why do we do this? And so they happened to uh, find a Chinmaya mission locally. And so that set me on a path of Advaita Vedanta. Uh, but now my parents and I have so many good conversations because the Prushti Marg family has gone virtual. And so my parents are so busy with online satsangs and doing darshan and all of that. So um, we really have a lot of robust conversations about, you know, the nature of God and all those things. So um, interesting um, shared heritage there that we have. So, you know, I'm just going to kind of cut to the chase here, but when did you realize you were gay? And what were your earliest concerns? Do you were, was there a particular moment that that happened or was it just over time? Well, uh, I discovered myself and I uh, consciously used the word discover. That's something which already existed and we need to discover it. So I discovered myself at the age of 15. Um, Many reasons contributed to that uh, late discovery because we see that many queer individuals discover themselves being different when they're very young. Uh, but I studied in Gujarati medium school till my 10th grade. I had never used internet till I was 16. Uh, so my area of external knowledge and information and the world outside my school uh, was almost uh, minimal to it did not exist at all. Uh, so 
I heard the term gay for the first time when I went to college. Uh, and I traveled by the local train outside Dombivali where I grew up and was born in. Uh, for the first time, all my myself. And then when I went to college, somebody called me by that name, that terminology. And then people started laughing around it. And that led me to an inquiry of what does this term mean? Uh, and then I did my own discovery and found that, oh, that means that a person who happens to be male, who is interested in physically, emotionally, and in, in, in terms of companionship with another man, is called as gay. And then I reflected upon myself and then I rediscovered that, hey, this is not something new to me. Maybe I am the one. Because when I look back at my childhood, uh, much before I knew uh, the what does LGBT stands for, how does uh, uh, reproduction happens and all of that. And again, let me remind you again that I studied in Gujarati medium and the chapter of reproduction came in the ninth grade. And the person who was supposed to teach us was a married auntie whom we still call Bane. And she completely avoided the chapter all by together. Right. That sounds and familiar. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I had no idea about the reproduction or, or, and then the human uh, or like, you know, organs and things like that and how things work. Uh, so I'm completely juvenile. I had no idea. And yet when I look back at my life, what I discover is that at the age of like, you know, uh, I think 9, 10, 10, uh, or when I was in seventh or eighth grade, when I was uh, nine to 10 years old, I had very different attraction and uh, like, you know, uh, uh, some kind of uh, like, you know, magnitude towards uh, third Mihiro Kipisaz Pekabi Bahuti, uh, when that used to come on TV or watching mm. Shakti Man. Uh, and, and then when he used to meditate, he used to be shirtless uh, or yeah. the Samaria song. Uh, right. right? So, so then I thought, that, hey, now I'm getting like, you know, linked and mapped with my own childhood that maybe I am the one. So many people, when they say that it is the result of some kind of bad childhood or some kind of wrong influence, None of this happened in my life. And that's why I shared this story that I had yeah. no idea what reproduction systems are. I had no idea of biology. I had never heard the terminology called LGBTQIA. And yet I discovered that even before any of this knowledge, I had attraction towards me by nature. Yeah. Now, when you, when you said you heard a word or a terminology um, on on a train was that the word gay or was it a Hindi word or no it was gay uh, it was gay okay it, it reminds me um, two things that you said that just sparked a memory for me one is on reproduction and some of the conservativeness amongst um, I'm sure it's amongst other communities as well but my my of course firsthand knowledge is with the Gujarati community being Gujarati but my mother somehow managed to always have a dentist appointment scheduled for me when we had our reproduction units so starting here in the United States I think they started in fourth grade where you learn about uh, like since I was a, a, a girl and a female that I was going to learn the female reproduction, a reproductive system. And then the next year you re learn about the male. 
So both years I happened to have dentist appointments. So missed it all together. Um, so it's just funny that, um, you know, my mother just felt like it was just way too young and that was fourth and fifth grade. So in ninth grade, when there's an auntie who is still very uncomfortable, uh, probably there needs to be great improvements made so that our young people are, are better equipped in knowing um, about physiology and biology and, and all of that stuff. Um, and the other thing, the word gay, I mean, it in some sense, you have to have some urban exposure, I would imagine, because it is an English word. Um, I remember on one of our trips to India, we had uh, we were going through Rajasthan and we had really uh, bonded with our driver who was maybe just a few years older than us. And it was myself and um, two of my cousins. We were all in college and late at night over dinner, we were having a conversation and, you know, we wanted to explore like, you know, how are these conceptions um, seen it, you know, just through kind of a middle India worldview. And we said, well, you know, what do you call it when two men or two women love one another, are attracted to one another? Um, maybe we didn't have the word for attracted, but at least we said are very close, love each other. And he said, Dost! and he could not wrap his head around any other words. So that's what, when you said that there was a word, I was wondering what was that word? Because in that conversation, which I think went in circles for 15 minutes, um, he, he just could not put language around it. Have, has that been your experience outside of say English? Yes. So, uh I discovered the word not by traveling in the train, but by my uh, fellow student. Uh, ah, okay. who was also in the college. So that's why he knew about it. But then I think uh, uh, because Mumbai is in a very urban city, so I think in urban cities, of course, you will uh, like, you know, find more and more people who are aware of these terminologies, even in the rural parts of the country, people are aware. But uh, I've also traveled across the country doing activism uh, in mm -hmm. the state of Gujarat, Rajasthan, UP, Bihar, some parts of Delhi, and say, and I did that for extensively for six months uh, after the 2013 uh, judgment of Supreme Court, uh, which recriminalized us after Delhi High Court in 2009, decriminalized us. And uh, so I can, um, like, you know, completely relate with your experience, which you just shared. The people do not have the terminologies to connect and, and uh, express it because all they have experience, including my mother before I came out, is just only three things. One is male, another one is female, and something else is somebody who comes on our door, claps and begs money, right. uh, and they, they call it hijra, right? So this whole concept of somebody who is a cisgender male, so somebody is a biological male, consider himself as male, so his gender identity is also male, any interested in male, uh, romantically, physically, emotionally, and looks at another male as companion. Uh, so mm -hmm. that is something alien to including my mother, right? So, uh, yes, a lot of awareness needs to happen. And fortunately, in last few years, we are seeing that that awareness index of India in terms of LGBT understanding has tremendously gone up for sure. Right. Um, and so and maybe this maybe you kind of touched upon what my next question is, is that who was the first family member? you spoke to about this and, and did they already know or what was their reaction and what were their fears for you? What were your fears in coming out to them? <laughs> Let me disappoint you. 
uh, with this question because none of this happened at all. Uh, ah, the reason okay. I say this is that generally it is believed that people come out in circles. So first you come out to a very close person to you maybe have like, you know, some of your friend or somebody who's your best friend, BFF. Then you come out to maybe your cousin. Then you come mm-hmm. out to your sibling or something like that. Then you come out to your parents and then the circle widens up by each step. And then you come out to your, maybe your extended family in the world and media and things like that. But in my case, what happened is that, uh, so I came out to the world at one go together by media interaction on 11th of December, 2013. Uh, that wow. is the day when the Supreme Court gave its negative judgment. Uh, uh-huh. And it was a very dramatic experience. Uh, if I take, can take a few minutes to express of that uh, incident, right? So what happened is that anytime a Supreme Court of India gives its judgment, it gives around 11 o'clock uh, in the morning, Indian time, they give its judgment. So I was at this organization called Hamsa Trust, which is the oldest, uh, very well-known LGBT rights uh, organization working in India. And I wanted to be with my community when the, such a big judgment was going to come. Uh, so at around 11, 11.15, Supreme Court gives judgment and we, we are seeing it on TV that's a negative judgment. Now, mm. at the Office of Arms of Trust, there are two set of people. It's completely packed with people, but there are two set of people. The one set of people is the community members from LGBT community who were had gathered in solidarity uh, to support each other in, in, in celebration or uh, in expressing their disappointment and it's a, like, you know, just be with each other. But the other set of people out there were from media. I had Mm. never seen a number of TV cameras all together with so many mics together in in, in one place like that. And as the judgment came in, they all were looking out for people who can come on the camera and talk about the judgment, take part in the TV live debates. And India has over 124 by 7 news channels. (laughs) Uh, and all the well-known activists of that time were busy with like, you know, uh, very premium news channels like BBC, CNN, Archstock and NDTV and things like that. But we have so many like like ETV and Bharat version and uh, News 18 and so many other regional news channels. Uh, And they were desperate looking at, is there anybody who can come on TV and take part in TV debates? And I asked this question to myself that if I don't speak today, do I have a right to complain that I'm born in a country where my rights are suppressed, wherein my rights are not been recognized, where my identity is criminalized? And the answer came from my heart was that no. If I don't speak today, I have no right to complain about it. And that right. is when I decided that I will come out. So my coming out, coming out happened to a net on a national television. So from 11.30 <laughs> right. in the morning till 9, 9.30 on a channel after channel after channel after channel, I just kept talking that how disappointed we as a community were by the uh, judgment of Honorable Supreme Court of India. And that's how I came out. Boom. To the whole world. Wow. Go big or go home. <laughs> Now, so, so then what, what did your, maybe for family members or friends who didn't know, um, if they see you on TV, what happens? Is your phone blowing up with phone calls? Um, like what's going on at that, you know, afterwards? So afterwards, uh, a lot of my friends got to know about it and they were super chill and cool about it. Uh, there were people who were uncomfortable. They stopped talking and I didn't care. Uh, uh, that's perfectly fine. 
uh, in my extended family, some of them got to know about it. Uh, they started uh, like, you know, talking among themselves with other cousins and things like that. But nobody had a courage to directly come to me and ask me the question. So if you don't have courage to ask me the question, uh, I mean, I don't need to tell you uh, like from my side, that's what I decided. If they would have asked me direct question, I would have replied with all complete honesty. Uh, as far as my immediate family is concerned, um, they acted as if nothing of this happened. As okay. if this does not exist at all, you know? Hmm. So mm-hmm. uh, this went on for a very, very long time. Uh, so I had like, you know, one or two slow, like, you know, mild coming out uh, event in my home wherein I had to tell them but yet they did not acknowledge this at all uh, hmm. till the time my father passed away uh, I never had that coming out experience saying that mom and dad said I need to tell you something that I'm gay that never happened uh, right. so they ignored this fact about me and mm-hmm. acted as if this did not exist at all in my life. At the same time, they did not stop me from doing mm-hmm. what I was doing. And they still still did not uh, stop me from what I'm doing currently. That is within the space of activism or within the space of diversity, equity, inclusion, and many other things within that same space I do. So I think as you have a very well-known uh, phrase in the US, like don't ask, don't tell. I think it was implemented within your military. I think the same phrase was implemented in my family as well. Hmm. Do you, do you think that, and this is what we've been finding, um, you know, on our Instagram posts that it, it is pride month and, um, we have for, for a long time, uh, you know, we were the first major Hindu organization to come out with a statement that explored, um, the tradition and our teachings to see, um, what does Hinduism say? about um about gender about sexual orientation and we you know have come on the side of saying that you know even atma and brahman are beyond gender and that the tradition is is quite open in terms of uh looking at every individual as an embodied eternal soul or atma and our ultimate goal to life is moksha so um and that is freedom from the cycle of birth and rebirth so Regardless of what these outward identities are, these outward layers that make up each and every single one of us, um, there's not there there's not a basis to discriminate, and in fact, there's a basis for acceptance of people across all all differences. Um, now, with that kind of background, um, what is you know, and we're we're based in the United States. Um, I was born and raised here as are most of my colleagues, if not born here, uh, largely raised here. So when we started, first of all, rediscovering in some sense our roots and what the tradition and even historically has held in terms of acknowledging um, a spectrum, so to speak, or acknowledging these types of differences, what we find most surprising is the reaction that we oftentimes get from Indians in India. So to our posts, for instance, a lot of homophobia, a lot of, you know, ignorance, I'm going to call it ignorance, not even hate to say, oh, this is a Western import uh, when that's not the case. 
So what has, what's your approach? First of all, you know, you talk about Hamsafar. So then why the need for a Hindu queer alliance? Um, and then what is your kind of, because you have Hindu in the name of, of this alliance, um, what, how does Hinduism inform um, your activism? Gosh, so many questions in one yes. question itself, right? <laughs> uh, I think that's so Indian to do that. <laughs> like yeah. that thali, which is full of flavors. <laughs> and you I'm Gujarati, so I have to give you a thali. <laughs> totally. So the different flavors may be completely opposite to each other, but yet when you have it together, it makes its unique uh, taste. Well, mm-hmm. uh, to answer your first question about the homophobia, which you may face within the... Uh, from Indian Hindu communities, I think there are two set of homophobia there. Uh, mm-hmm. And I always say this, that homophobia of India is not a homophobia of hate, but it is a homophobia of ignorance. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Um, the reason I say this is that, again, you cannot generalize the whole country by one statement, but this is what my observation is, uh, observing a, a lot of individuals during my travel, and still I come across a lot of people on daily basis as an activist, is that they do not hate, because hate is something, is your value judgment after understanding a fact. That, okay, mm-hmm. I understand this, and yet I do not accept it, and I reject it, and that's why I'm going to hate you. Hmm. but ignorance is something that I'm, I just do not know about it. And that's why I have a fear about it. So the mm-hmm. fear reflects, takes the form of rejection. And that is how a homophobia is built within India. Mm-hmm. So yeah. There's a quite a uh, lot of difference between the homophobia, which you may face or experience within Western countries than what you experience in India, because my homophobia here can be addressed by the proper knowledge and understanding in mm. the language they understand. Right. Uh, so not all of the people will understand the language of law. Some of them may understand the language of science. So please answer them in the language they understand. Uh, right. Some of them may understand in, in the language of social justice. Some of them may understand also from the language of religion and scripture. And some of them uh, may also understand the language of humanity and companionship and love and acceptance and and personal journey and stories. I think that is the most powerful tool to use. So what happens is at times within the activism space is that we use or we restrict ourselves in a particular language without understanding that from where the other person is coming from and which language they understand. And I think... Religion is a very, very, very powerful tool and a language to explore, to spread mm-hmm. the message of love and acceptance. We also need to be understanding, uh, we also need to be conscious of this one fact that religion has been used as a tool of hate against LGBT community for centuries. Yes. But when this hate come to India from the religious perspective, it doesn't work in India because the indigenous religion, whether it's Jainism, whether it's Sikhism, whether it's Buddhism, or whether it's Hinduism, have overwhelming space for diverse gender identities, orientation, and expression. Right? right. And I think it's time that we use 
this as an advocacy uh, mechanism to spread the message of love and acceptance that is why the queer hindu alliance comes in the picture mm-hmm. so yes organizations like hamsafar trust solidarity foundation uh, collective lawyers uh, association and things like that they are doing phenomenal amazing work in in you know bringing the change from the policy point of view bringing the change within the judiciary bringing the change within the uh, political uh, conversations but mm-hmm. at the same time we need to bring a social change as well and not all the people within society will understand this uh, privileged language of law and and social justice they right. may be able to understand the language of religion and culture and heritage and history and that is when queer hindu alliance comes in the place so if you are an individual or a group of people or a family member have a question about lgbt identity from religious perspective primarily from hinduism here is the open space we are not going to like you know impose our understanding of religion but we are going to give you an open space for dialogue samvad not vivad That's yeah. why Queer Hindu Alliance is there. So let me ask you this, um, and I don't know if the if the dynamics are the same in in India as they are here, but what we have found is that you know the conversation about um, LGBT plus equality, dignity, all of those things are happening in more um, progressive or quote unquote liberal. circles um but we've also faced an increasing hostility to hindu voices um now part of that i think stems from colonial narratives about hinduism that have framed hinduism or have lent to an understanding of hinduism that is um very hierarchical and rigid um and almost through the lens through an abrahamic lens as opposed to exploring the tradition um on its own How, what has your experience been is that the same kind of uh political social dynamic in which you're finding um your kind of political social voice and is there um is there maybe some suspicion when you come in as a hindu because of some of these preconceived notions of oh well if you're hindu you're conservative whatever that means well uh, maybe you are shying away from using the word hindu phobia i will not and i'm not using yeah you're exactly i mean i i agree with you it, it is a level of hindu phobia coming from other hindus in fact absolutely so i think uh, there is a hindu phobia which is existing uh and unfortunately it is coming from the hindu community members themselves uh and then this is coming uh, because of their understanding of hinduism which is very much uh like you know born out of not their tradition not their parents but yeah. so called quote unquote woke narrative of religion mm-hmm. uh at least that is the reality in india i have no idea how it is in western countries i think but, it's parallel then <laughs> right? exactly uh, yeah. so i don't want to talk about political spectrum uh, but sure. for sure there is a political agenda behind it mm-hmm. uh, to 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 uh, put hinduism down um, mm-hmm. to box hinduism in the conversation of uh, 
uh, of uh, gender discrimination and caste-based discrimination and things like that, which are right. uh, which are really some sort of um, like you know small conversation within Hinduism, which majority of Hindus are slowly and steadily are recognizing and getting away from it, getting rid of it. Right. Right. And this this revolutionary voice again came from Hinduism itself. Right. Right. And I always say this uh, when let me also be bold here and use the again the elephant in the room when we talk about Hindu phobia and that is Manusmriti. And mm-hmm. I always add a beautiful answer to anyone who is saying Manusmriti is this and that or any kind of conversation about caste-based discrimination and misogyn. I'm sorry, I'm not able to pronounce that word. Misogyny, uh, yeah. Misogyny, <laughs> right? Sorry, that's my Gujarati medium in my time standard. No, 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 no worries. <laughs> so all this, and I say that, hey, if you're a Hindu, our primary text is Vedas. And on top of Vedas are Upanishads, right? So that is like absolute authority. And everything else, whether it's Puranas, whether it is... Uh, um, Smritis and Shruti Granthas comes later to it. And no Hindu can deny the fact that just right. within the Sampradayas, you may respect a particular text higher than that, but that is your individual practice for your own spiritual growth. But when we talk about society, when we talk about uh, uh, like you know, on a macro level as a, as a community, uh, from a Hindu perspective, it is the Upanishads. It is the Vedas and Vedanta which is the Upanishad, which comes the absolute highest authority. And can you find a single reference which is discriminatory within the Vedantas? And Vedanta yeah. itself says that if any message given by Vedanta, which is contradictory to any of the text which comes later, whether it's in Smriti or Shruti Granthas or Puranas or anything else, you need to go back to the source that is Vedanta. If it is opposite view, Follow what the Vedanta says. Follow what Vedas says. Follow what Upanishad says and not what Smriti Grantha says. Right. Right? So we have that freedom. Unlike Abrahamic faith, wherein the words written in a particular text itself is absolute. No. Right. We don't have that rigidness. So um, when you use some of our own text written in a particular context, written by a particular person or persons, for that particular time, and right. question us based on that today. I'm sure that is a political agenda because Hinduism at its core, in its core principles are the Vedas and Vedantas. And if right. you can find even a single line from Vedanta, which talks about caste discrimination, which talks about gender discrimination, which talks about any kind of dis- discrimination based on any of our bodily function. Right. Then I'm ready, uh, like, you know, to accept that, yes, Hinduism is a discriminator. But if you can't find that, I think you have a political agenda or you are misinformed. No, that's it. That's exactly right. And, and you know, um, I oftentimes uh, everything that you said completely resonates with where I am on all of these issues. And, you know, Manuswati, even at the time, you you can even go today to an average village and say, have you heard of this? Maybe now they have as a result of it being amplified um, through colonial Let policy. An interesting incident here. Right? You know, it's a quite yeah. funny. Yeah. So uh, I went to this uh, person's printing press 
who happened to like you know in in Nashik. Uh, his, his son was a good friend of mine, and I, when I visited his home, he said that hey, my father has a printing press. Would you like to visit? I said yes. Why not? Tell me. So uh, it was a very small scale uh, printing press. They used to print uh, like you know some of the. Typical Dadin Chikenuske kind of books, which are sold in local trains for ten rupees one book, and things like that. Not very high level printing, just like a typical commercial station material, railway station material in India. And so I was just going through, and I saw that Manuswati was being printed there. And to my shock, I had never seen a printed version of Manuswati in my life, though being Hindu. So I asked uh, that person, that uncle, why are you printing this? and the answer he gave me i was completely shocked he told me that we don't print manuswriti very regularly but we print it when we get an order by a like particular political spectrum when they want to do a demonstration and burn it oh. so today manuswriti is being printed to just because the people who oppose it want to purchase it so that they can burn it wow all right <laughs> they would that have is- not demanded Manuswriti being burned, there would have nobody who would have printed, given an order. This would have not been enough. At this right. scenario, right? That's so, um, <laughs> it is so funny that if you just just randomly take any hundred home Hindu homes, there is a hardly a chance that you will find a single home where you will find a Manuswriti. So, I think that when 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 people like you know put us down with just one text or a particular uh, set of texts from our tradition and culture i think they are so narrow minded uh, that they don't understand the vastness the openness the inclusiveness uh, the vyasaness the vyasa means that which expands uh, yes. the brahmananess the, bra- the that which is brihidamana the whose mind is br- so inclusive so vast Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they narrow it down to just one thing. It's doing really injustice, and then yeah. that injustice is what Hindu phobia in my understanding. Right. Oh, absolutely. I want to shift a little bit to something that's current, and um, that is marriage equality. Um, from what my understanding is that um, the the Lehigh Court is. I think there's a number of cases that have been um, consolidated. Is what my understanding was, I have not followed it in in too much detail because we have a number of legal issues on our plates here. But at HAF, I'm just going to read you a quote from our own policy, because when it comes to marriage equality, we've tried to balance um, one of our kind of guiding principles is secularism in the way in which it has been uh, interpreted in its ideal. And that is to have state and religion on parallel paths um, and not interfering with one another. So where we have here, let me just read the quote, quote, while the government may regulate the legal right to marriage, marriage as a religious right obviously falls within the realm of religious freedom. HAF firmly holds that Sampradayas, temples, religious leaders, and priests have an inalienable right to define marriage in conformity with their traditions as they continue to interpret and reinterpret them over time. 
But because Hinduism has no central authority that controls philosophy and values, a tradition of interpretation according to time and space by those qualified and with spiritual spiritual competency or adhikar, different groups and individuals may move or not move at a varying pace on a religious sanction of a right as fundamental as marriage. So how does that land um, with where you might be on this issue? Well, thank you for uh, sharing that quote. I think it's a very mature policy. And I'm sure over a period of time, uh, you will also come to a point wherein you will say that, uh, and you add in line that marriage within Hinduism primarily is about between two souls and soul is gender neutral or gender beyond, not even neutral, gender beyond. So um, it doesn't matter uh, who two persons are uh, in terms of the gender identity, if they want to live together in Grihasthashrama Dharma, they have a right to do so. Uh, yes. Having said that, I think um, in terms of legal references in India, uh, what is going to happen, uh, and that is by uh, like understanding and, and uh, based on the reality which I'm experiencing on a daily basis, is that uh, there are multiple cases which are currently being filed in multiple high courts of the country will end up in Supreme Court for sure. And okay. now it will depend on Supreme Court eventually to put it us, uh, put this under religious marriage act, which we currently have like two, four to five marriage acts, or mm-hmm. put it us under a special marriage act. Uh, that depends on the right of uh, Supreme Court of India. But there's one more legal avenue open, uh, and that is that if the Parliament of India passes uh, the Uniform Civil Code, because currently marriage is consumed under various religious acts, right? right. Uh, so if all these marriage acts, uh, like, you know, dilute within uh, one unifying civil, Uniform Civil Code passed by the Parliament of India, I hope and I pray and I will advocate for that to be gender neutral, as it would be caste neutral, religion neutral. It should sure. be gender neutral as well. So all sort of religion, all sort of marriages will be consumed under uh, this uniform civil code in the eyes of law. That is the, uh, like, you know, the, the legal part of it. The second part within the legal argument would be, I'm also personally open towards not calling it marriage and calling it civil partnership. It is hmm. much more practical and easy solution out, wherein we don't argue of marriage uh, from a religious perspective at all, if religion is something uh, sacred to a religious authority who do not approve of LGBT marriages, I'm completely fine with it. As hmm. far as I am getting the civil partnership, that wherein I can transfer my property to my partner and not uh, to somebody whom I have not even talked in years and never came to my home and check on me. And just because who happens to have a blood relation with me, gets my property after I pass away. Or my partner can come to my uh, to the hospital if I'm unconscious and my mm-hmm. family cannot reject his right to be there with me because right. our partnership is not legally recognized in the eyes of law. So I think I'm more interested in that than yeah. quote-unquote so-called marriage, which is an institution <laughs> dominated by religion. Sure. So that is this. That is the legal argument. The second part of this, from the religious aspect, as far as Hinduism is concerned, there are seven to eight ways to get married. 
uh-huh. within hinduism and out of that uh, hardly four or five are gender specific there are uh, like you know other ways in which you can get married within hindu system which are gender neutral like uh, rakshasa vivaha uh, and then other vivahas which are way beyond gender spectrum so i think that uh, and then these are not, not like negative ways of getting married like uh, right. uh, subhadraharan uh, was considered as rakshasa vivaha right when right. you abduct uh, a, 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 gr- right. a bride based on their willingness with based on their willingness their families against it uh, and things like that so is that gender neutral gandharva yes gandharva vivaha Yeah, Gandharva Vivaha is gender neutral for sure. Okay. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, so there are multiple uh, marriage uh, references within Hinduism, uh, which can be practiced uh, with a religious institute, uh, like an authority in place uh, for the queer marriages. And in addition to that, we need to again come back to the core thread within Hinduism, and that is marriage is between two souls. and right. it is the relationship for like you know multiple births and mm-hmm. the soul is gender beyond for sure right so we, we you know at HAF we've um helped two couples two different situations one was um a gay couple looking for uh, a hindu priest who would conduct a ceremony and um we were able to to connect them with the per- priest that had this kind of core philosophy at the heart of everything that they did and another area where um you know a, a lesbian couple was facing some resistance was uh that they one of one of the wives was expecting and they wanted to do um the semant the you know the prenatal um ceremony and the local temple was a little bit resistant there and and we were able to connect them um with a priest as well so you know there are i think when we look down at a very granular level i think that there has been a long history of of the hindu tradition and priests coming forward and recognizing that this is a union between two souls um to atma and um and kind of accommodating or I don't even know if it, the word is accommodating because in some sense the the vidhi itself stays the same you still have your agni as as a witness you still have the rounds around um the agni as a witness and you have saptapadi which are the you know critical pieces of the vedic ceremony and talking about the legal right um it reminds me what you just said of our my husband and I when we sold our first home and this would have been um in the early 2000s here in the United States and um a gay couple bought our home and I remember looking at the contract and I'm a lawyer so I'm accustomed to seeing contracts and I remember how many additional hurdles they had to go through in all of the language like every little preset line that was there to write the names of the two individuals had to have this additional thing who has full rights uh etc cetera, etc cetera, and essentially having to outline what rights are basically taken for granted between a husband and a wife for this couple and you know it was quite tedious for them obviously and 
it was really eye-opening for me to see it as a lawyer. You know, we can talk about it conceptually, but here was a contract. And I thought, my goodness, how much they had to make sure, you know, you're already reading contracts with such a fine eye, but for them, the stakes were so high because as you said, if you have a family that has not really been a part of your life or has even worse yet ostracized you, which is not your case, but it has been the case for many um, that they at the last minute without having any connection to your life can just step in and um, and take away from from your loved ones something that's so um, inherent to what should be theirs. So um, I'm glad that you brought those points up. Um, I want to ask a question. Uh, and maybe it is a little political, but I, I want to know what your perspective is um, from the ground and whether you answer personally or whether what you're seeing on the ground, it doesn't matter to me. But, you know, a lot is made here in the Western media about Prime Minister Modi, the BJP, about being the conservative party or the Hindu nationalist party, which conjures up. I think for an American audience parallels with the conservative Christian political movement, which we've touched upon kind of the core religious differences in terms of approaches to um, homosexuality or, or to gender differences. So what's your experience been in terms of policy changes on an openness um, under the current dispensation? I, you know, there's, it's hard to know just based on the media because for every article that there is that shows the party sympathetically, there's plenty that show it critically, but what's the finger on the pulse on the ground? Like, do people see this party as, as being um, a hope uh, for LGBT plus equality, or is it like any other polity, policy or political party rather that's a little bit of everything? Okay, so let me answer this question uh, by answering the last part of the question from the LGBT perspective so that that is out of the box. And then we can talk more of a, from a macro level politics in India. Uh, yeah. I do not think that BJP as a political party yet has the courage to mm -hmm. open up towards LGBT identities. Mm -hmm. uh, despite many of them within the system of uh, BJP, plus their ideological think tank called RSS, uh, being very open uh, internally mm. uh, to the extent even RSS made out in a supportive statements about LGBT community very recently. Uh, last year, I was invited by a, uh, um, like, you know, the RSS, what their annual conference where I was supposed to speak on Hinduism and LGBT uh, uh, identity, connecting dots between the two. Uh, very recently, I gave a lecture at an uh, Indian Institute of Democratic Leadership, which is the, uh, like, you know, a diploma program run by RSS for the people who are interested in policy and, and politics uh, within mm. India. And, and they wanted me to give a talk to the future politicians who are getting ready. Uh, mm. to talk about how LGBT identity is important, right? So BJP and RSS as a pol social political spectrum hodgepodge uh, is changing. They are getting uh, themselves uh, like, you know, opening their ears about LGBT identity, but yet unfortunately, they do not find the courage to talk about it very openly as many within the opposition political spectrum in India are doing it. Mm. Having said that, the, the same opposition, when they were in power, 
did almost nothing for LGBT identity. And they started talking about LGBT identity after they lost the power. Hmm. That is it. Now, talking about the larger political narrative, I think that let's also understand one thing, uh, is that India is a democracy in practice. Hmm. That means it is a political democracy in practice. Mm -hmm. So when you have a political democracy in practice, all you need to do at, at one given point of time wherein you have a popular figure like Narendra Modi is to throw all the mud you can at a figure like him and just do not care that whichever mud will stick to him or not, not to the brand Modi. So mm. they are trying their best to do anything and everything possible under the sky to malign mm. the image of, of Prime Minister Modi. And unfortunately, as we are living in the, in the age of a virus, uh, let me use the term that, that their hate for Modi is uh, mutating in the form of hate for India. Hmm. Right? So, yeah. uh, very recent example uh, that uh, on a clubhouse, uh, uh, a very respected politician from opposition party, Digvijay Singh from Congress, uh, has made a statement saying that if Congress comes to power, we will relook at uh, the, uh, the Article 370 of Jammu and Kashmir, wherein, mm -hmm. uh, like, you know, their own uh, party and their own prime minister for over the years have talked about getting rid of Article 370 say, or, or, like, you know, uh, uh, like water it down to, to the level, it just become a piece of paper, but nothing in right. practice. Right? right? As an LGBT right activist, I feel that um, today, LGBT community uh, within Jammu and Kashmir are no more criminal just because Article right. 370 is not there. Right. Today, the Dalit rights, the women's rights uh, are being like, you know, are given, which are available in in, in whole part of the country. Uh, to the people in Jammu and Kashmir as well. Today, Sarva Shiksha beyond the right to education uh, and so many other uh, policies which are there by the central government or the laws which are uh, interpreted by the Supreme Court, which are progressive in nature, are implemented in Jammu and Kashmir because Article 370 is not there. If it was there, it would have not been implemented. Right, exactly. So, right. Um, so that's the second part of it, LGBT part of it, then the political spectrum of it. Now the third and much more important part of this conversation, and that is that India as a society and a community is getting united like never before hmm. uh, in, in solving the generational issues. Right. The issues which were just put down after one generation after another. To, to resolve for the next generation. Why? Because my immediate political gain is uh, in not addressing that issue completely, but just putting some uh, band-aid to it and putting out to the next generation. When right. Prime Minister Modi is able to find the courage to resolve the issue, and not all of them would be uh, like, you know, perfect solutions, but at least he's addressing whether it was Article 370, whether it was triple talaq, whether it was uh, like, you know, the issues uh, related to uh, CANRC, very it was a it, it was a uh, like you know 
pending work in my personal understanding in my personal statement is the, the work left from the partition wherein we need to recognize the religious minority of our neighbors and not just hindu it is mm-hmm. hindu sikh jains parsis buddhist christians mm-hmm. uh, who feel discriminated based on their religion are welcome to india right and that leads yeah. me to the final point and that is that can you put a single policy point out towards a single policy which is discriminating based on religion whether it's uh, giving opening up lakhs of crores and crores of bank account with a zero balance mm-hmm. whether it is direct money transfer right uh, within my community because i have been active during the pandemic uh, i know that so many community members uh, have got rations uh, because of the central government schemes and the state government scheme as well uh, just like last month central government rolled out a scheme wherein they were transferring uh, 1500 to direct money transfer to transgenders of the country right supporting them right are they asking their religion are they asking their caste there so let's understand that india is a political democracy in place so some kind of political conversation from all the political parties need to happen because end of the day they need to win election but when right. it comes to practice when mm-hmm. it comes to policy when it comes to social schemes when it comes to community upliftment i don't see a discrimination happening Hmm. Well, I'm going to end with one question. I I feel like I could go on forever. This is a great conversation. But, you know, we you touched upon uh the pandemic. Um are there any specific challenges, you know, related to the pandemic or even more broadly speaking and how might allies um to your community help or support the cause? So thank you so much uh, for that uh, beautiful question, uh, and then I got uh, that I need to be short uh, answering these questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there are a lot of challenges we faced as a LGBT community in India uh, due to pandemic, uh, especially the trans community who depend mm-hmm. on uh, singing in the weddings, uh, who depend on begging, uh, they who depend on commercial sex work and extractra for their livelihood. unfortunately through the lockdowns they lost their livelihood uh, and in, uh, at the same time we saw so many people coming out in support you know i, I have personally known uh, 50 plus fundraisers for, to support transgender community within india uh, so mm. that they can survive this challenging times but at the same time the non trans uh, community within lgbt spectrum uh, also faced a lot of challenge and much uh, of the attention were not unfortunately given to them uh mm-hmm. wherein uh, like you know we come out as as l uh, g b and and uh, at times we just leave our home uh when us tired to cities tired to cities or in villages because our family do not accept us completely or at times even they reject us and we start working in the metro cities in a very small scale jobs uh, uh whether we are working within say bpo sector or within uh, working within shopping malls and and all of this also came to a standstill and we had to go back to our family who do not accept us uh, mm. for our survival and nobody was talking about that so within queer hindu alliance uh, we did a fundraiser and we helped over uh, 200 queer individuals across country irrespective of their gender caste religion uh, and we we did a direct money transfer and fortunately we were able to 
like you know mobilize around 2 lakh uh, indian rupees and then we helped uh, them during those challenging times second after that we also realized that there is a lot of challenges uh, uh, within community from mental health perspective so we had uh, uh, onboarded a four mental health care friendly professionals uh, who were ready to answer uh, your queries on whatsapp and if needed schedule a call with you uh, unfortunately we saw seven plus at least i personally know of seven cases of suicide within community in india uh, after the lockdown over placed one and a half years ago uh, i think those lives would have been saved if we had a better support system within community but as an optimistic i also saw uh, uh, that pandemic also uh, gave us opportunity for community to come together to support each other we do so many fundraising so many community support helpline numbers uh, so yes uh, living under the closet in extension to that living under the lockdown is no new thing for a community of queer around the world but what was new to us was this challenges and and we as a community have supported each other to the level we can that's amazing well on that note it's been such a great pleasure for this first conversation i feel like we've known each other for a long time <laughs> but um it's it's the meeting of 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 hearts and minds which is always a lovely thing and just uh last thing if people want to find you i know you're on instagram but if you want to just plug in some of your websites or or social media channels that would be a great way to end yes uh, so on all the social media handles my uh, handle is citizen ankit everywhere c i t i z e and citizen a n k i t ankit and if you want to reach out to queer hindu alliance it's the same or queer hindu alliance on instagram or queer uh, h a on uh, twitter and on facebook uh, so feel free to reach out to me i'll be uh, very happy to connect with all of you there awesome thank you well stay safe ankit and um till we can meet in person i look forward to that day namaste thank you so much for having me i look forward to meeting you in mumbai or in the us or anywhere else in the near future and stay safe everyone uh, thank you for having me. namaste jai shri krishna jai shri krishna That's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hindoamerican.org slash donate. And before you go, a quick message. The Hindu American Foundation proudly supports We Can Do This, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services nationwide COVID-19 and vaccine education campaign. Our community has been hit hard by COVID-19, and many of us need help in getting educated about how we can get vaccinated. Our organization is working hard to ensure our community has access to important information in our fight against COVID. Learn about COVID-19 vaccinations and get help scheduling your vaccination at vaccines.gov. We can do this. We can do this.